The Executioners is a podcast about actually getting shit done. On this one, we'll be speaking with Jigar Shah, who's a leader and voice within the clean tech, green tech, green energy space. Jigar was formerly the CEO and founder of Sun Edison, uh, which was uh, the pioneer, the first to execute upon no money down solar on people's rooftops. Um, that may, may or may not sound like a big deal to you, but essentially it allowed for people to finance uh, solar onto the roofs and allowed for a business model that could actually scale uh, both in the US and globally and uh, led to groups like Solar City and widespread use of rooftop solar. Currently, Jigger is also the co-founder and president of Generate Capital, which to my understanding essentially takes this sort of uh, utility or uh, kind of no money down or less money down financing model that was used for rooftop solar and tries to apply it to other kind of mid-market infrastructure in the green tech space that uh, a lot of others can't necessarily handle from a financing perspective. I also really just appreciate, you know, in my past experience, interacting with Jigger, his uh, humility and also kind of focus and drive uh, in a way that's very intrinsically motivated, in my opinion. So yeah, I'm looking forward to learning more from him and uh, hope you enjoy it. A quick uh, legal thing and then we'll get started. Alexander Bloom is the CEO of Atomic Capital. All opinions expressed by Alex or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Atomic Capital. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Alex as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hey, Jigger, it's so great to have you on our podcast today. Thanks for joining. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I provided a bit of an intro as to uh, your past work at Sun Edison, but uh, perhaps just to get started, it'd be great to hear about what you're doing at Generate Capital and uh, anything else you're working on at present. Sure. Like, well, when I started Sun Edison, the concept behind it was really business model innovation. So you have all these entrepreneurs trying to figure out how to take something that is relatively well known, but no commercial bank would ever, you know, finance it for you and you know figure out how to cross that challenge um and so when i started sun edison there really was no generate capital there was right. no place for me to go to say this makes a whole lot of sense why don't you finance it and so that's what generate capital is now to thousands of entrepreneurs is you know if you've got a great solution to you know saving money on uh, uh heating and air conditioning using phase change materials right that sounds space age, even though it's been around for 25 years with DOD and others. Um, and Wells Fargo is now re like replacing all of their ceiling tiles with phase change materials to save money. Yeah. Like we would finance that where a local bank would say, get out of my office. Uh, and is that just a byproduct of the complexity of those kind of projects or why wouldn't a bank, if there's money being made, why wouldn't they do it? Because their expertise is lacking or what do you attribute that to? Well, it's mostly because in general, you know, banks get penalized for what they do wrong, right? They don't get rewarded for what they do right. And so they don't really actually have a incentive to do anything that they don't really know, right? And that everyone around them doesn't know. So if they went to credit committee and said, I'm going to do this really cool thing with phase change materials, people would be like, I don't even know what one is. I've never even seen one. Why do you think this is a good investment for us? And pretty soon you can imagine the credit officer just saying, this is too much work. Why am I even bothering? Right. I guess that makes me think, I think Generate's been around for maybe four or five years now. Is that correct? Yeah, five years. 
So as you guys, you know, I was looking at your website and there's quite a few employees there. Um, I wonder as you start to grow and scale, how you maintain that kind of level of innovation and risk taking without kind of becoming bureaucratic and institutional like a bank. Well, in some ways we want to be bureaucratic and institutional, right? Because that allows us to attract even cheaper capital than we get access to today, which then allows us to serve more people. So that part's good, right? Yeah. I think the part that's not good is like you said, you know, giving people a chance, right? We want to be able to give people a chance. And so, you know, we want to make sure we're, um, you know, forcing that back into the organization. Um, and I face that now. I had two clients the other day who said, when you pass me off to your people, they basically asked me all these tough questions. And at the end said, we wouldn't be right for you. And I was like, huh, I probably should need to go correct that from my people. So um, like, I don't know that there's any way of solving it except for me and my partners that started generate to to keep you know making sure that everybody recognizes that we're here to take risk not to shy away from it gotcha so you know the execution is kind of a podcast about why people can get things done successfully and actually put them into the real world as opposed to just talk about them um and so i guess kind of as a framework i wonder you know you've succeeded on a you know pretty broad level and multiple times and i guess i wonder how you understand that or what you attribute that to is that natural talent or some kind of principles or what's driving you or allowing you to do things better? Well, for those who've known me for a long time, I don't think it's natural talent. I, I you know, honestly, I think it's, it's about um, picking your spots. Like the thing that I'm better at than most other people is saying, I get the fact that I've got 52 things on my to-do list, but these two things matter. Like if I get these two things done, then I unlock the next set of opportunities, right? And I'm just really good at like cutting through the noise, right? Where there's a lot of people, I would say the vast majority of people take comfort from knowing that they're capable of completing their to-do list, right? And so they start with the stuff that's easy, right? Emptying the dishwasher or figuring out how to, you know, get life insurance or whatever it is that's on your to-do list. But I start with the two things that matter the most, even if that takes me the longest and is like takes me eight months and is really hard. Like that's that's what I that's what I do. And so at Sun Edison, it was always about getting institutional quality, right? Like I had high net worth individuals who said, "Oh, Jigger, I'll invest in your projects. These seem awesome." But I realized early on, I was like, "You don't scale, right? At some point, you're not going to have enough money to keep up with our industry." So I've got to convince Wells Fargo or Goldman Sachs or somebody else to do it, right? And then it took a year and a half longer than I wanted it to, but we did it anyway, right? At Carbon War Room, it was very obvious to me that like the biggest problem was that people viewed climate change as a sacrifice, not as an opportunity, right? And who better to change that voice globally than Richard Branson, who had sponsored us? Right. right. And so as soon as I went to Richard and said, here's my idea, he was like, yeah, obviously, this is awesome for me. Right. Like, I love entrepreneurship and I love opportunity. Right. I hate, you know, just focusing on challenges. Yeah. And so we were able to change the entire global conversation from everyone just needs to pay an extra Starbucks coffee a month and which was shared sacrifice to, you know, this is the largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime, which is what got the Paris Agreement signed. Right. And with Generate, it's the same thing, right? Like it's basically, um, you know, figuring out how you get access to the best of the best entrepreneurs, 
mm-hmm. right? And we, we had to talk to them. We had to interview them, right? We had to serve them and say, why won't you use our capital? Well, we're not sure you're going to be around. We're not sure what it means for our venture capital fundraise. Like if, if we use your money, does it make us look good such that it's easier for me to raise corporate capital, right? And I was like, oh, I wasn't optimizing for that, but I guess I will now, right? Like, and so like figuring out exactly what the two or three things are that actually generate huge amounts of value and focusing on those things as opposed to clearing the other 52 things on the to-do list because it's easy. Gotcha. So I guess I had another question uh, kind of in that vein, which is saying, you know, it's the time I've known you a bit, you've always been very, very busy, but also responsive and like able to make time for things. And I wondered, my question was, how do you determine what you spend time on? But in that vein, like, how do you go about determining what's, what matters when you're pursuing a business or something? Is that just intuition or logic or how do you go about that? Well, on the first part of your question, um, I don't know. I was raised to be nice and polite and I just don't understand people who aren't nice and polite. Like I just, it doesn't take me that much time within reason, obviously, to respond to a reasonable request from you or other people, right? Like I just, like, why wouldn't you respond to people? Like, I don't understand, right? I get the fact that, you know, if my email address became public and somehow I was getting like, you know, 10,000 emails a day and I couldn't possibly read them all, I get it, right? But I'm not, you know, I'm not that popular. And for the people who reach out to me, like, I do have the time to reach out to them. And I just think it's, it's a level of kindness that I think is missing in our society when everybody wants to be viewed as inaccessible and like so super cool and awesome that like, you know, they've got like an entourage and whatever. And I, you know, I just, I honestly don't understand that way of thinking at all. I think we're on the planet to help other people. I don't understand why else we'd be here. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, this prestige or faux elitism that, makes people maybe have like a fear of missing out or it's valuable because you can't have it. I remember I went to Andreessen Horvitz once and some guy there was said like, they don't publish their emails. And he's like, if you're a good entrepreneur, you would be able to find it. And I was like, not necessarily, not if I'm from like some other country in the middle of nowhere. It just seems like a really close minded way of uh, uh, not to like think that's like how entrepreneurship works. And, you know, so I agree with you that it's uh, being responsive. It's not too, too much of an ask. Um, yeah. And then separately, I think on your latter question, which is around how do I figure out what to focus on? Look, I think ultimately it's about creating the space to actually have the time to think, hmm. right? Like it's amazing to me how many people are just so busy and they confuse motion with progress, right? And like, I just, I am very focused on thinking all the time. Like, you know, like I'm busy, I'm scheduled. Like today I'm scheduled every half hour, got it. But when I, when I like, I really am present in the conversations that I have and I'm constantly thinking like, is this really something that's going to move my own personal agenda forward in a way that is massive, right? That I can contribute to, or is it, you know, just a second tier idea, right? There's lots of second tier ideas. There's a lot of stuff where it's like, that's really cool, right? But it's going to help a small number of people that actually have that issue. It's not going to help the broader population who has bigger issues. Right. And, and, you know, I'm not trying to be self-absorbed about this, but at this point in my life, I want to work on bigger problems that, that help a larger group of people, not smaller problems that help a smaller group of people. So it sort of is what it is. Right. Um, 
And, you know, so I'm constantly going through stuff. And then the other thing for me is that I'm just very focused on what I'm doing now, right? So as soon as we decided to generate capital, I got off all the other boards I was on. I told people, I was like, I'm so sorry, but like, I know I made this commitment, but I can't do it anymore, right? Like I'm focused all in on this. And I do that for, you know, the better part of five or seven years, right? Because that's what it takes to get something done, right? Like I just, I've never found, I've never found it appealing to be like people who, you know, every three months are excited about something different. Like that, I don't think that that is a way to actually move the needle on something and get it across the line. It really takes years. Makes sense. So you mentioned five to seven years. So with Generate, that's not uh, too far in the offing, I guess. I wonder how you define, you know, success or what you've set out to do with, with Generate Capital or um, where that goes from here. Well, with Generate, it's a little bit different for me in that it's a platform that I've been working to build for 20 years, right? So now I'm here mm -hmm. and I'm helping thousands of entrepreneurs a year, some just through advice and others through capital. And, um, and it allows me to do my writing and my podcasting and all the other things that I do all serve to bring more clients to Generate. So it's actually like something I'm going to do probably for the rest of my life. But I think that what's happening now that we're hitting year five at Generate is that I no longer like am one of like three people who founded the company. I'm now becoming one of eight people that are running the company. And soon I'll be one of like 12 people running the company. Right. And so like my level of um, stress and of responsibility will go down to a certain sliver of the responsibility of the company, right? I no longer have to be the person who has to figure out, you know, HR and figure out like, you know, our legal situation and figure out this and that. There's other really smart people that can do all that work so I can retrench back to the stuff that I'm good at. Gotcha. Uh, and that being like uh, time conservation and efficiency with not going and doing every single thing all at once. Uh, right before we start recording, if you don't mind my sharing, you said that you're trying to travel and go to as few kind of conferences or speaking sort of engagements as possible. I wondered why you came to that conclusion and uh, how, it's, how it's been working for you. So in general, I would say that going to conferences, in my mind, is about creating more connections and creating more work, right? Like, like I don't take that stuff lightly, right? If I go to a conference, right, and I'm networking with all those people, I'm present. I'm genuinely there to help the people that I meet and hopefully get helped by the people I meet, right? And... So when I get their business card, I expect to follow up, right? I don't expect to like sort of just slough them off and say, oh, I keynoted this conference. Look how important and awesome I am. I'm going to go back home now and like relish my awesomeness, right? Like, no, like if I go to a conference, whether I'm keynoting or just attending, like I'm there because I actually believe that there's something that they can teach me, right? And right now, like I'm inundated with business that I'm doing, right? I'm inundated with like all the stuff that's going on, like, in terms of clients, et cetera. And so traveling to New York for this event or Philadelphia for that event or Boston for that event, like is not something I need to do to actually like move my goalposts and my like key performance indicators for my current business, right? It just creates another 500 LinkedIn connections, <laughs> which I don't need, right? So I just think you have to be selfish about, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Here's what I need to accomplish it. Does this actually fit in? And you have to be ruthless about it because as you suggested, like it's a lot of time, like, you know, 
to fly someplace, like go there, be present, come back, then do all the follow-ups. Like it's just, I, I think people don't think it through. I think another thing that's uh, somewhat of your reputation or notable is that you have some, you're more outspoken or maybe you could say authentic or uh, controversial at times. And I wonder if that's just, uh, you know, a lot of people try to stay away from kind of being opinionated in any kind of public way. And I wonder why, uh, how you think about it and, and maybe take a different choice. So, um, I mean, there may be times where I'm gratuitous about it, although I don't think I am. In general, I, I feel very strongly that there is a lot of advice that people should have told me when I started Sun Edison, and they didn't, right? Because they were too nice. And they were patting me on the head and said, oh, Jigger, like, you'll be successful, and you'll be great, and solar's amazing. And instead, what they should have told me is all of the hard truths that they actually knew and understood. It would have better prepared me for what I was embarking on. Right. Like I still would have done it because I care deeply about it, but I would have been better prepared. So that's where my sort of like hard edge comes from is that I know these entrepreneurs because these entrepreneurs were me. Right. I had like $20,000 that I painstakingly saved in my checking account. I took like a home equity loan on my house. Right. To start Sun Edison. Right. And so I funded the company for the first two years. Right. Like, I just think that that's how everybody in my sector is like every solar developer I know of mortgage their house to, you know, to pay for the first hundred thousand dollars worth of expenses for setting up a solar farm. Right. And I just think it's unfair to those people who have mortgaged their house to sell them like, you know, rose petals and perfume. Like, yeah. why, why would you do that? Like, they could lose everything if they don't have good information and know enough information to manage risks well. It's almost like there's entrepreneurship and then there's like the entrepreneurship industry of like incubators, accelerators, like cheerleaders and feel good books um, that don't necessarily prepare you in the way that, that you need perhaps. It's not for the faint of heart. And I, I do think that more people should do entrepreneurship, but not because it's cool and sexy, but because we have a lot of problems to solve. And I want people to like be so passionate that they wanna go out and solve a problem. I wonder, and I know it's also, it's, you know, it seems like there's almost two classes of entrepreneurship, like VC backed Silicon Valley businesses that are, you know, really well resourced. Um, I just spoke to the other day that has, you know, they're all from Harvard Business School and, you know, there's cool snacks in the kitchen and then people that come from maybe more of a grassroots approach, like, like you described, you did. Um, and it's almost like, I mean, you can't, it's almost a different playbook in a certain way. Uh, when yeah. there's not infinite resources, um, but you don't really hear about that second class as often. Well, the second class is what makes this country, right? The first class is a whole bunch of people who basically create, you know, fabulous ideas, whether it's, you know, like hardware, software, like social media, whatever, whatever. Like I'm not taking anything away from them. But those people are people who for $50 million or $100 million of venture capital can create a $10 billion business, right? right? That's how that works. The vast majority of entrepreneurs are figuring out how to get their local church to do LED lighting, right? Figuring out how to like get, you know, the local, um, you know, landfill to actually divert organic waste so that you can make compost out of it instead of burying it in the ground, right? There's no way that those people are ever going to be worth 10 billion ever, right? That idea is not a $10 billion idea, right? And so 
So they're not going to get venture capital and they shouldn't get venture capital. Sometimes they do get venture capital and then that turns out to be an even a bigger disaster. Right. Right. But they shouldn't get venture capital. Uh, yeah. Just a different class of uh, problem. And but I think still people like read these books and think I need to scale and all this, you know, entrepreneurship language when it's like, maybe it's okay for certain things to be local and just solve a problem. Um, but nobody, nobody really wants to be that role. Everyone wants to be, or the people I know, I think want to be that, world-changing influencer. Uh, and so it's hard to accept that you're just locally influencing a church or something, perhaps. Well, but I, think, but I think when you think about how the world works and how it's been successful, it's always a local person that matters. Hmm. Like when you look at salesforce.com, for instance, right? Like when you go to the Dreamforce conference, think about how many thousands of people are there and think about what the small businesses are that are represented there. Those are not fast-growing companies that are going to become, you know, $10 billion companies. Maybe one of them is. But the vast majority of them are local techs who go to people and say, hey, I'm going to, like, like help program the last mile of your Salesforce stuff. The same thing's true with solar, right? Like, the vast majority of the solar industry is 10,000 local solar contractors that, that respond to your phone call when you say, hey, I want solar. Mm, right. Right? Like, that matters because that's the only way we get to – 20,000 megawatts of solar getting installed every year. Yeah. I mean, someone's got to do the, the footwork that's not uh, changing every kind of innovative product. Someone has to actually go put it into the world. Right. So for every billion dollar company that gets created, there's like, you know, a thousand companies that get formed that are more local in nature, right? That do help that church get access to whatever services they need, right? And yeah. so I just think that to say that one is more important than the other is you know, I think not acceptable, right? I think they both reinforce each other. I know for me, like I'd rather be the head of Salesforce than a Salesforce, like local IT person as far as, you know, I, I wouldn't say one's like the two uh, roles are maybe equally important, but as an individual, one has, one has more influence being at the top of Salesforce than the top of a Salesforce service provider in, you know, Omaha or something. Mm, you'd be surprised. Like, I think like, like I, I think in general, look, I've been both. And so I appreciate both. But at the end of the day, um, being at the top of a corporation is an extraordinarily lonely place, right? It is not a place to make friends. It is not a place to like, take lightly. I mean, you're firing people like you're, you're, you're like determining people's livelihoods, hmm. right? You're actually like figuring out what to do with shareholder capital. Like, it's a very lonely and dark place and you find that in general like a lot of people at the top of corporations don't have good work-life balance right right they they have i mean think about it like one of the biggest criticisms of silicon valley is that san francisco has like the highest percentage of kids who go to bed hungry every night right right for all that wealth those people are so stressed out that they cannot be bothered to think about their local community yeah right the yimby like nimby problems around housing you would think San Francisco at this point would be a utopia. It is far from a utopia. I think it has the highest uh, like Gini index, with the highest uh, disparity in wealth of any U.S. city, I believe. Right, but you'd think that that would mean that there's all these philanthropists that could solve all these problems and like nobody would have a care in the world anymore. But there yeah. seems to be more cares in San Francisco than there are in Kansas City. Yeah, there's some kind of underlying truth there, perhaps. Um, I just want to make sure we cover, uh, you know, I work in regulated financial products uh, that are held or issued on a blockchain. Uh, and I wonder, you know, specifically with uh, 
clean tech investing or um, just the investing space in general, if you've given much thought to the role of blockchain or, you know, regulated financial products or, uh, God forbid, cryptocurrency <laughs> as, as some kind of solution to um, any, any of the work that you're doing or any kind of opportunity there? So I think in general, people use these words to try to mean something before so they don't have to explain it in two or three paragraphs. They can say, oh, I work in blockchain, right? Or I work in yeah. cryptocurrencies or I work in whatever, right? And in general, I think you actually do need the two or three paragraphs, right? Ultimately, yep. what we're talking about is a new system by which to actually record small transactions or any transactions for that matter and actually have an auditable trail by which to actually be able to pay everybody the right amount on time and all the other things that you need to do to unlock a, a sector, right? Yeah. Whether it's in my space, it might be demand response or load control where every event only nets you 18 cents, but it happens all the time. So 18 cents is a lot, but you still have to do that work, right? So I think blockchain has a huge role to play in what we're doing, but I, I don't think it's blockchain, right? Like I think it's a new system by which to actually process small transactions which happens to be blockchain here, but in some other iteration could be called some other buzzword, right? Or, yeah, are you saying it's something other than blockchain or it's an application that utilizes blockchain? Like, is it like Stripe or is it like a different internet? Well, no, I think it's more about what problems people are trying to solve, right? Blockchain has been around for 20 years, right? It's not like a new technology, right? right. It's an application of that technology to help people that actually creates huge value, right? And I think for a long time, blockchain was synonymous with cryptocurrencies, which caused a lot of us to be like, what the hell, right? But now there are people like yourself and others who are saying, no, blockchain is a technology in and of itself that's been proven over the last 20 years to provide these services. And if we improve the access to this underlying backbone with this sort of user interface or this other stuff, we could actually, you know, do a lot of stuff in energy or do a lot of stuff in baseball card memorabilia or there's lots of places where blockchain could be you know utilized to make processes more auditable like you know with less corruption and more um you know common sense to everybody that's that's participating yeah um in that video i have a couple minutes um to kind of tie it all together both with I wanted to ask you both in the clean tech or green tech space, uh, there's some overlap with blockchain that regulation is uh, often in tension with innovation or financial financial innovation as well. Um, yep. And I wonder just kind of how you see that tension or which one uh, drives the other, or how you overcome kind of regulatory barriers to, to make things happen. Um, in, you know, I think it's a lesson that could be used in blockchain for, you know, we issue financial security products, um, but the SEC doesn't tell you what they, they're okay or not, uh, even if you do your best. And I wonder, I know you just mentioned New York passed a law yesterday. Uh, I wonder how you think about that kind of balance. It's hard, right? Basically, the biggest problem with regulation for people like us is that we're in an established industry, right? You're in the established finance industry, I'm in the established energy industry. And so regulations were put down for other people that weren't tailored to me, right? Yeah. And so it actually is holding me back and but at the same time, they were put in place because, you know, clearly they want to prevent harm, right? Yeah. So, like, you see both sides of the story, but at the same time, you're like, look, man, like, you got to get out of my way. And I totally agree with you. I don't think there's an easy way to solving it, which is why when we started Sun Edison, one of my co-founders was an expert in regulatory affairs, 
Yeah. Right. And we did that early on because we realized how important it was. And so I think there's a lot of people who take their libertarian values too far and don't realize they got to live in the real world. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like what you were saying at the get go about, you know, banks or regulators, they're not getting paid to take massive risks on, on the rules. They're getting paid to keep order. Um, and such so yeah. a person incentives, I think. They get fired when things go wrong and never, never get acknowledged when things go well. <laughs> what a life. Um, well, I'd rather be on this side of it for sure. Um, <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time. I guess before you go, is there anything else you want to share about what you're working on or things that people should know um, that uh, you can give to the rest of us? Well, I, you know, all I would say is that I still continue to believe that local entrepreneurship is the key to making life better. Right. Like, and so I do think that while those of us who are working on sort of global entrepreneurship and national entrepreneurship get a lot of the headlines, I do think that local entrepreneurship is where people are the most focused at making people's lives better. Yeah. You know, making sure that their actions actually are getting the reactions that they're expecting. So that's why for me, everyone is an equal. Like I don't make the global entrepreneur more important than the local one. I think they're all entrepreneurs are required to make the world a better place. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Uh, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much. No worries. Take care. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jigger. Um, as you can see, pretty grounded and humble guy considering the things that uh, he's done across the world for helping our environment and making things happen. Yeah, it strikes me just the ability to understand what one's goals are that he has and then organize his activities around that. I think that, you know, the kind of discipline and focus, though, you know, many people can talk about it, um, is really actually executed upon. Um, and judging by what Jigger's accomplished, uh, I suspect he's actually walking the walk that he's talking. And so that, you know, I think um, his discussion around the balance or differences between you know, local and more national or global level entrepreneurs, however you want to call it, is interesting. Uh, there's, of course, a ecosystem of people and participants in any kind of business or functioning economy that requires them all to do something. So, of course, nobody's more or less valuable than any other, though I think some people with less effort can have more influence, which is what I was trying to get at. Um, nevertheless, uh, really a pleasure to speak with Jigger and um, hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. <laughs>